Association. 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 That was such uber ponage. Hello, fellow nerds from the studios of WBNS-FM in Columbus, Ohio. This is the Nerd Association podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Barnett. And this is normally where your other host, Mark Finch, would be jumping in. But we have for you today the second part of the Harry Potter megasode that we've been promising. In the first episode, we did tackle the first portion of the books and movies. And in this episode, we tackle the latter half of the books and movies and also the reunion special. And also touch a little bit on the legacy of Harry Potter. If you haven't heard that episode Go listen to it first. This episode will make a lot more sense. Without further ado, we're going to jump in right where we left off with myself, with your other host, Mark Finch, and our special guest, Michael Lyons. Thanks for listening. Can we do a quick tangent, though? I know we're yeah. going to uh, have, you, have you listened to this show? Of we course, we can do about... a quick tangent. <laughs> <laughs> to your point about the Dumbledore casting, can we talk about what the all-star bad guy casting was for this movie? Like Again, you have Jason Isaacs as the Elder Malfoy. You have Helen Bottom mm-hmm. Carter as Bellatrix, and like you already said, Ralph Fiennes as Voldemort. Like Bellatrix is strange is my favorite character in the whole series. Oh yeah, and I mean, again, we'll get to the special later, but she's probably one of the best parts of also the special that they aired. She was just yeah. hilarious. <laughs> but yeah, like that that villain power was just so much of a game changer. I feel like, and like again, they had to bring that in order to make these threats real beyond just like kids getting into trouble stuff, right? And they did such mm-hmm. a good job with that. But Daniel, this is the one that you said the book you had to put down. It wasn't good. So you haven't revisited this one I'll at all? I'll be honest with you. I could tell you nothing about – I mean, you were just going over the plot, so obviously now I could. But I could tell you nothing yeah. about the Order of the Phoenix and why – like, I can't tell you why. Yeah. It just was at the time it just, like, didn't resonate with me. I will say – I mean, based on what you're saying, though, like, the thing that the series – does with varying levels of success and we've touched on this is like the tonal shifts are sometimes too abrupt and like you were talking about that as a problem mm-hmm. with the movies to me i think the tone from goblet of fire to order the phoenix i if i had to point to something probably it was that the tonal shift was so abrupt and it was like suddenly a john grisham novel in the in in a sort of wizarding world right it's like a crime thriller all of a sudden Unless I'm just mis- completely spot, you know what I'm saying though. I mean, is that is no, that a, no. is that a misinterpretation yeah. of those like what you were talking about? That like suddenly it's a very different kind of. It's no longer about, or it's very little about going to school to be a wizard, and it's suddenly now into that sort of like save the world phase. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, and that's one reason why I wanted to circle back to that. That that this is the book kind of that dropped off because I actually felt the same way when I read it, and part of the. And again, I, I read something about later. Again, I was reading these rankings of the books. and I'll get to that in a second. But for me personally, this was really hard because I was so invested in Harry and the story. And I think it's not unfair to say Harry's an asshole in this one. And he's kind of a jerk to everybody. And you don't like, because he's your point of view character. You're spending a lot of time with him. And it's really kind of tough to get through, slog through. In addition to the things that you're talking about, Daniel, yeah. where it's like, we all have been turn into a spy <clears throat> novel basically we got this underground organization kind of waging war against Voldemort behind the scenes of the ministry who's also trying to crack down on you and that's actually one of the things that my wife who loves this one really likes about the book and movie but like for the 
how important house points were in the first book, right? Like the whole plot hinged yeah. on at the end, Dumbledore giving yeah. out house points. Those are long gone in any consideration of anything important right now. Um, yeah. Which again, the, the maturing of the character, yeah. sure, but also it does change your outlook on the whole whole series as well. The house points is another administrative note, by the way. You can't tell <laughs> kids that there's just like fair competition all year long and then at the end go, actually the kids who broke the rules, they broke them in the right way. They win. I mean, that's society. Sorry. Well, let's also that's talk society, about how the baby. teachers yeah, are in each house. They get <laughs> yeah. No, I want to yeah. your point yeah. though, like, you know, at, at the beginning of the episode, I said, perhaps this is an opportunity for you guys to convince me to get like, to try again. And quite frankly, the sort of espionage secret society story you're talking about, it's like, oh, like that's the kind of crap I love. So maybe, yeah. in fact, like it was just that I wasn't the right age for it. But yeah, now that's like, I'm like, okay, that sounds kind of cool. Like now I think I'm into it. The Order of the Phoenix also has the best villain in the entire series, and it's not yeah. Voldemort. Dolores and Umbridge he- is the best on screen bitch of all all time yeah you, you talk just about feel it well, it's, it's like it's like 1984 <laughs> too in a little bit like you're talking about the sort of the sort yeah, of yes. the uh that they're suddenly like not learning anything it's more about like don't do this don't do that in a sort of weird way it's like clap back to fascism i guess yeah but also that like sort of fascism that is that that masquerades as like communism almost I don't know. It feels like the gulags to me in that way. And so in a, in a way, it's kind of like a Cold War novel, almost. No, it, yeah. yeah. In a lot of ways, I think there's lots of parallels that people have drawn for it for both what's happened in real world history as well as what's happening today. And I think there's good reason for yeah. that. And again, there's lots of the stuff there that you can get into about doing that. But for me, like I said, it was it was the the problem was that it was from Harry's perspective, and Harry is just so angry all the time about being left out, not being involved in things. And again, it just and then of course at the end of the story, all those mistakes he made by acting that way come back and bite him. And so like you're left with this really sad slash depressed and bitter taste in your mouth of how things ended up in this book and movie, based off the ending. And it's just like you don't feel like with Goblet that you have this anticipation of what's going to happen right. next. And you don't feel like the earlier books this anticipation of like, oh, everything ended up all right. This is the first time where you're like, man, things sucked. And it's not going to always be great coming out. That's about the dramatic tone shift though, too, right? I mean, it's not just a tone in the sort of type of story you're telling, but it's this tone shift in the characters that I, and maybe that is it, that it just, I wasn't telegraphed at all that this was where we were going to end up. No, and I think that's probably right. Because being looking at it now, and I I called Harry an asshole, but he's still my favorite character in the series. I mean, yeah, you can be both. Looking at it now, (laughs) right. But like that's that's the kind of point I'm gonna make. He's 15. Yeah. Like the stuff that he goes through, especially in this part of the story, like you gotta put yourself and again, it's easier now to do than when you were 15 reading it and thinking like, no, he should totally be justified right. or whatever. Now looking at it, it's like, of course, a 15 year old with the world on his shoulders is gonna act like right. this. Can you blame him? And again, we're it's amazing that J.K. Rowling, especially in the book form, because again, they just can't really capture this completely in the movie. Though Dana Radcliffe does a phenomenal job in this one. She was able to make you, again, dislike the character that she's made you love over four books. And she's going to make you love him again by the end. But it's just like mm. amazing how she took that risk, right? Like most authors wouldn't be like, unless you're George R. R. Martin and just wants to kill him off, uh, <laughs> won't risk losing their main character to their audience's preferences, right? And so like it's, it was a really good risk I think she took. And it, again, when you read the whole story now, you really appreciate that she did that because it shows that Harry is just not this perfect hero, 
you have the full context of like why he makes some of the decisions later on in his life and in this journey that he takes based off of the mistakes and things he did wrong here, but also some of the stuff that he learned from, from others, how they treated him, which is, I think really amazing. It's what makes the book more amazing to me now after having read the entire series. Whereas when I first read it, I was like, yeah, this is entertaining and good, but this is definitely not my favorite by any means. And it actually, it's funny you bring up George R. R. Martin, because I was just thinking about this as you were saying this. It's almost like Harry Potter does it in the correct order, where there are sort of two villains to the way of life Harry Potter envisions for this wizarding world. And that's the ministry and their overreach and just they're just not good for for what's going on and what needs to happen and then there's Voldemort and I thought in now we don't know how the novels are going to end but in the TV show Game of Thrones they fought the White Walkers first and then they went yeah. and took down Cersei and that would be like if he beat Voldemort and then took down the Ministry of Magic yep. it should have been yep. flipped in Game of Thrones and it was in the right order in Harry Potter no I completely agree and honestly this is one of my favorite movies of course again this is a new director but like, again, talking about those changes the movies made, and they're not even really changes, the way the movies were able to be successful, even though the books are so great, is the two, one character you mentioned, Umbridge, she's just amazing. Again, how do you capture the stuff that's like terrifying the books in just so much shorter time? And she did it with Aces. And then Luna Lovegood, Bottom Lynch, who plays Luna Lovegood, was just an amazing, like, again, you can't really explain how the character is in the books, but if you had to, you would just point to the screen and say, that's her. And that's how I think everyone felt when they first saw it. And I, I know that's how I still feel today is like those two additions to the story were just like phenomenally done it. That alone makes it a really good movie. But I also like the transitions with the newspaper and all this other stuff that they did. And again, I think the main cast is just getting older and so they're getting more into their roles so much better. And they're like really knocking it out of the park. And it was good for the continuity sake of like, that really turns the page. There's the, the whole umbrage arc and everything, but the, the last three movies. So the last two books don't really have to do with school at all. Yeah. And I think it was good because we're talking about the tonal shifts and stuff that David Yates, you know, he took over and he directed the last four movies and you get kind yeah. of a more solid picture of what's going on as, cause those four, I mean, you can take those and that is like its whole arc of a conflict and i it, it does cut in half nice there so it's good that those last four yep. get one director one voice from that that chair i think that's a really good point because that's definitely how i feel too if you are you know 10 11 12 years old you pick up sorcerer's stone for the first time and you can see yourself in the character in those first four books like you can, you know what I mean? You can draw those parallels. Like I go to school and I have mm -hmm. these things and like, no, I don't fight Cerberuses and basilisks and, you know, have an uncle or like a adopted uncle or a godfather or whatever, who's a werewolf. But there's a more human scale to those. And even like the f Goblet of Fire is okay. I'm a, you're a teenager. You're getting into sports for the first time. It feels like the biggest thing you're ever going to do is like being in the cross country matchup or playing, you know, playing a football season or whatever. I think the part of the disconnect too is as you're talking about, like in the last three books, in the last four films, there's not things become a lot less relatable. And, and I, mm -hmm. again, I don't know if the timing is quite right for like, for the audience to be able to see themselves in, in the books and in the movies anymore. And I don't know that that's a, a failing. Yeah. I just think that that's like, I, I think for the people like me who dropped off, I wonder if that's not part of it. No, absolutely. But I will, I think it's a good transition. 
chops to what did you think about the sixth movie? I think the sixth movie is really good. And I think it brings up two characters we have not talked about very much here that really do deserve a, a lot to, to talk about in those other ones, but we've just covered so much. There's only so much you can say about these, but uh, Draco Malfoy and uh, Snape in though in yeah. that one, there's such a big part here in the, in the half blood Prince. And it, it's great to, to have them there. And the order of the Phoenix introduces what I said, my favorite character in, uh, Oh, what's her? The Lumbridge. Helena Bonham Carter. Bellatrix Lestrange. No. Oh, oh, oh Bellatrix Lestrange. Lestrange. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, st- I, I run around the house yelling, I killed Sirius Black, and my <laughs> wife gets so mad at me because she hates the character, <laughs> but I, I love it. Um, And she's That's a big hilarious. part in this one. But Malfoy and Snape are such big parts of the Half-Blood Prince, and we haven't talked about them very much, so I think that's where we should start when talking about this one. Uh, I think this one's really good. Yeah, and so I'll start there before we get into the characters themselves. But, like, I really love this movie. Um, and it's funny because, like, I was mentioning those lists and stuff I saw. I've seen this one get trashed by, like, book fans and stuff because they do take a whole chunk and kind of don't tell the story well. And there's some plot points that will plague later movies, too, in regards to how they kind of set up the horcruxes and everything. Mm-hmm. But, like, for a standalone movie, if I want to watch one Harry Potter movie, this is usually the one I pop in. Um, which yeah. is kind of funny. I don't, I don't know. I think it's just me personally, my personal taste, but it's also probably my second favorite of the whole series in books because to your point, Daniel, this is actually like the first time where it's like, it's similar to the third book. It mirrors that where Baltimore actually doesn't appear. And for lots of various reasons that we don't need to get too in detail about, he's also not like in Harry's head the way he is normally in sure. some of the other novels in regards to their connection with one another um and so it's actually kind of like this refreshing thing where you see harry who's mature enough and his friends to be mature enough to do things on their own independently without like even Voldemort hanging over it and so it's kind of like the luke skywalker return of the jedi moment where the hero has matured enough to really kind of be their own person they still have one last hurdle of course but like right this sixth book at hogwarts really kind of brings the war to the school but like you still get all the school stuff. Whereas in the next book, we're going to go on the road and not see the school until the final, final section. But like this one really allows them to be older kids at this school, dealing with ordinary things, but the war kind of in the backdrop. And I've always really appreciated that because it's kind of refreshing after you have the order of things where again, Harry and Baltimore are so intertwined in this battle in the shadows In the seventh books, the battle out in the open, the six books like this, like, pause in the action really but it's also where we learn a lot about Voldemort's past his motivation the reason why he's so powerful and how that just ties into both the books before and the final conflict that's coming after and so like you really need this breath of fresh air before you hit the ground running into the last conflict and it's one of the reasons why I love it the movie doesn't capture a lot of that they capture some of it some of the parts better than others but like I've seen it compared to like uh, the Harry Potter's version of a teen romance or rom-com film, uh, which I kind of really like because, yeah, it is kind of charming and funny in lots of ways. And Ron and Harry's struggles with uh, with their uh, female friends and girlfriends, as well as, to your point earlier, Chops, this is one of the best Quidditch movies in regards to like the effects were right, looks good, feels good. Yeah. And it's just the right amount of it, right, to make it feel like an actual sport versus like this magical thing that no one understands or can like follow. 
Yeah, I really like the the half blood prince. So yeah, that is the this is the one with the liquid luck and and Ron yeah. and everything. And uh, Luna when she's sitting there yeah. and had, uh, <laughs> with, the, with the big lion the head, lion head, yeah, she looks, she just looks over them like nothing's changed. I'm I'm still just here in normal garb. So yeah, you're right. There is some some levity to it, and then there's the the big thing where they're they're learning about the Horcruxes and they you yeah. know, Dumbledore has to save Harry and then they come back and then the, while they're gone, that's when Malfoy eventually figures out how to get the Death Eaters into the school. And I think that's my favorite shot from all the movies. Yeah. When Bellatrix Lestrange comes out of there and just kind of how eerie that is and her little, her wry smile as she steps into the, the Hogwarts grounds and you, Malfoy, you can feel the tension in him that he feels like because of who his dad was, that this is something he needs to do, but he's really not so sure about this whole Voldemort thing. And it's like, well, you better yeah. be pretty sure. Cause it's kind of hard to, <laughs> to come back from it. Uh, and right. he, he just can't bring himself to, to do the ultimate bad deed at the end. And then you get a double cross of Snape, but it's actually the, the second of a triple cross from Snape. <laughs> Which we'll learn about in later movies. Later movies, yeah. No, and I think that to your to your first point, we were talking about this. The Snape and Malfoy. I mean, Alan Rickman and Tom Felton just nailed this because, mm. again, it's Harry's story, and in the book, we're still getting Harry's point of view. So, like, Snape's a huge presence throughout all the books, and of course, Malfoy is too. But Tom really did a lot with kind of much smaller amounts of the page in the book to really convey like your sympathy for his character, despite him being a bully for six plus movies and books that you just hated the whole time. Yeah. That was a really amazing what he was able to accomplish with that. And if Alan Rickman, of course, is just like all spades and like he is this character front and back and center. And like this movie is one of the greatest examples of that because it's such a complicated, like you said, you, you mentioned all the double crossing, the secret agent stuff that's still going on with him and everything else. And like he brilliantly plays it that you just can't read the guy yet. You know, there's something motivating him. He does these cool things throughout all the movies and stuff where you like, you can tell something's driving him, but you just don't know what. And then in the books, it's the same exact way. He goes back and forth between the, the different characters and acting different ways. Like in one of the few chapters where we're not taking it from Harry's point of view, it's all about Snape basically dueling words with Bellatrix about what he's been doing this whole time. Is he serving Baltimore? Is he serving Dumbledore? And that back and forth is just, an amazing piece of literature that that alone could earn JK Rowling lots of awards and stuff for, because she threads that needle of people who've been reading his books for years. When they got to that chapter, still couldn't decide which side he was on. You can make your argument either way. And then by the end of the book, you still don't know for sure. And then mm -hmm. I think the think the other main character, and this is where the movie kind of struggles more, but where the book is phenomenal is Dumbledore. Uh, Gavin does all right and everything, but like part of the failings of the movie is his role in explaining things and kind of get involved in Harry's love life and stuff, which was not in the book at all. But like, this is really one of those few glimpses that we get just Harry and Dumbledore kind of going off on adventures. One of my favorite lines from the series is uh, from him where he goes, says to Harry, let's step out tonight and try to find flighty mistress adventure. And they just kind of go off and go find this new thing that they were looking for. And it's just like, this guy, you could see why he's the one that is like the top dog in the wizarding world, why he's the one that Voldemort's scared of. And it kind of continues that from the fifth movie and book where they had that major climax with the, the facing off of those two. And we get kind of like a, in the book, epilogue to that, where it's like a, another scene where Dumbledore and Voldemort face off, but they only use their words. And so like, it's really great. 
both book and movie. And again, I know a lot of people dissed the movie for some of the things that they took into consideration when they changed it. But to me, this is always the one I turn on when I want to just watch one Harry Potter movie because it gets me everything I want and enjoy about that world without having too much grief throughout, but enough action and stuff to keep me riveted in my seat. When you were reading Half-Blood Prince, had the biggest spoiler that existed in the Harry Potter world been done to you or did you not know what was happening as you because that's such a ubiquitous thing now that yeah. Snape kills Dumbledore if you don't know it I feel like you're almost leading up to this like ooh, you know you know there's one more book and you're thinking yeah. are Harry and Dumbledore going to team up and be this ultimate duo power to take down Voldemort and then that rug is just pulled out from under you and by somebody that you were suspicious of but didn't think was wholly a villain maybe in Snape yeah, yeah. Spoiler, Daniel. Uh, I mean, uh, again, you want to <laughs> uh, that's one of those things where at this point, like, uh, no, not a spoiler alert. It happened 10 plus years ago. Everyone shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, um, I had not been spoiled when I first read it. This is this is when I was again. this is probably when I was most into the fan things um, in regards to I read the books pretty much as soon as they came out. But I was one of those strange people in my era who didn't have Internet. And so I was graduating high school. So I didn't have it to be like go on and like share what the rumors were about what was going to happen or somebody spoil it to me or anything. I literally would just get the book, read it and then enjoy the movie whenever it came out. And so no, I got that fresh, but I will say I was one of those kids and still I am that type of person who there were signs along the way that there's no way that Dumbledore is going to make it till the end. This has to be Harry's journey, right? This is this, this classic story, right? So you knew something wasn't going to go right. You just get okay. quite know when or by who. And of course, when it happens, you're like, oh, well, of course it had to be him. But like, there's things throughout that you're like, maybe it's going to be someone else again. What's Malfoy doing this whole time? How's mm -hmm. that going to work out? You kind of think it should be Voldemort to kind of show that how strong he really capable is really capable. But like the fact that it was Snape was just yeah, kind of like you knew it happened, but he didn't really believe it. Because again, Rowling just threaded that needle. It's like, he has to be on his side, right? Or no, he doesn't. And just like, <laughs> at the end, you really are kind of like just shaking. You're like, oh, okay. She did that now what yeah and then as you mentioned you kind of go there's parts after that and you go through all that and uh, another thing i like from bellatrix now she goes she goes full crazy when she like destroys the big window in, in the grand hall <laughs> but when she's running through and she's running on the table just kicking glasses which is such a minor thing yeah. to break and i just love that part of her character that like she's this yeah. crazy and they're they're looking to like take over the wizarding world but she will still take the time to <laughs> just be that petty and just kick glasses over on the table it's the ultimate agent of chaos move right yeah <laughs> right yeah yeah it's exactly a great way to describe her but it's also hilarious like she's burning down haggard's hut and snape tells her to leave and she's got like this sad look on her face like what no more fun <laughs> she just walks off it's just brilliant but again another book to movie change that uh, was actually a really positive one she's not in there for the book it's different death eaters who are assisting malfoy throughout and so it made sense probably from a again making a movie perspective we want one of our biggest stars to kind of be heavily yeah. involved and she's recognizable as these bad guys right we don't need more stooges but like for the book she's not there and in the movie it's just like you i'm like those are some of the best scenes in the entire thing so yeah yeah in the movies except for like lucius malfoy and bellatrix all the death eaters are kind of just like yeah they're just other people that are around like so yeah, <laughs> yeah that was a good that was a good call by them then you get into deathly hallows and that's they're huge and i think it was right that they 
put some forward that were like, these are going to be the big players. So you don't have to sit there and, and know a ton of characters as you get into our final two movies, our final book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. For me with the Deathly Hallows, you have to start with, it probably wasn't necessary for them to split this into you get it. This is what they do. Now they split the last one of a, uh, of a book series. It would have been a longer movie, but I feel like, Maybe, maybe the decade has changed it, but you know, you look at like Avengers Endgame, and that's three and a half hours long. I think they could have gotten Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows done in three and a half hours. Instead, it's two, two ish hour long movies. And the first one, they find the sword of Gryffindor, and that seems like pretty much it to me. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting point, Chops, because <clears throat> for me, I, the Avengers example is a really good one. So, I was going to ask, you don't, do you not like the uh, first Deathly Hollows part one? Uh, well, is that like lower on your rankings from the movies? Yeah. I mean, cause it's to me, it's just kind of boring and maybe there's enough character work that people who are really into the characters a little bit more like it, but yeah, it just feels underwhelming and like nothing happens. Yeah. So for me, I always make this distinction. I'm sure you, you both understand this really well too, of the work that you do and everything. There's a distinction between my favorite and my bet, the best one, objectively, right? And so sure. like, I think yeah. we've already talked about my bet, my favorite, which was the Half Blood Prince for just a, again, pop it into the DVD or turn it on the streaming and just watch it when I have it down uh, time. But like, if I would say objectively the best movie, I would almost have to say it is the part one of the Deathly Hollows, personally speaking, because it's like that. To me, it's again back to the Avengers example, it's the Infinity War, whereas the second part's the end game, right? Yeah, and those are two movies that have to work together really, really well, even more so than all the other continued MCU connections that go on. Those two are like the bookends of the final act. And like Star Wars reference for your sake, Daniel, it's like the Empire Strikes Back before you hit Return of the Jedi, yeah. right? And bad guys come out on top in the last part of the Deathly Hollows part one. I've... You know that. I feel like yeah. those movies, though, like Infinity War and obviously Empire Strikes Back, they have their own climaxes and they have their own story within the bigger story. And that's yeah. why I don't like Deathly Hallows Part 1 is, like I said, it it seems like it's all set up for the the first one or for the, the final one. I will be curious when Dune Part 2 comes out, mm-hmm. how people reflect on Dune Part 1. I loved Dune Part 1. I think it was an exceptional movie, but I do wonder if... I, I wonder how it'll hold up to this sort of thing we're talking about where like a two part movie where the first part ends up just feeling like set up once you've seen part two. I don't know that it yeah. will hit that, but I'm curious. So that's kind of a, a current example of like, yeah, how will they nail that? I have a feeling with as dense as Dune is, it will be necessary. But I mean, I think Harry Potter fans could make that argument for Deathly Hallows that I can't speak to that. Was Deathly Hallows really dense enough to require two movies? Maybe yeah, it's a great question. And to, and to Mark's point, I think this is one of the first ones that did that, right? Of course, Twilight and several others came out right after this. That yeah, the, the so, the, all the but ones like, that were trying to be the next Harry Potter, right? Did it, exactly. so, but I guess they did it first. It seems like yeah, yeah. You had the Lord of the Rings. They they were very true. They did each book with each movie, right? Until they mm-hmm. hit the Hobbit, which was after all this too. Everything, right? <laughs> Harry Potter was really the first to take a book and be like, no, no, there's too much in there. We're gonna split it in two. We've already talked before. It's not the Deathly Hallows is the longest book, and each of its individual movies aren't the longest movies. But it's it's almost kind of frustrating because they do give by doing two movies, they do give a lot of space to explore the story. But really, what they have to do is a lot of catch up to kind of explain some of the things that they left out of the other movies. So that's where a lot of I think the first part gets weighed down. 
mm-hmm. is that it's like catching up some of the plot holes that basically that J.K. Rowling had been kind of feeding throughout the entire series. They had to play a lot catch up about the Horcruxes and finding them and everything. And Dumbledore's kind of master plan that's kind of just coming into Harry's view as he keeps going throughout things. Um, and then the second movie is basically just an action movie, right? It's just a big battle scene for like 90% of the movie. And so again, it's like two separate movies where one's a lot of character work and kind of on the road type of journey adventure of a lot of downtime. And second one's all about, you know, let's blow up as many things as we can and kind of bring as many characters back from the entire series as possible. Kind of be like, Oh, I know that person. Oh, I remember them. And that's kind of what, two very different kind of movies which is kind of funny for one story one book that they were drawing from i feel like one thing for deathly Hallows that detracts for it for me and this is again goes back to kind of the the first two being so magical to me and something i really enjoy deathly Hallows part one has like no hogwarts in it and that's something i do miss from it and then as you mentioned the set piece for the action scene of the of the final movie is yeah it's like 90 percent at hogwarts it feels like yeah no, I think that's right. And that's actually one of the things about people don't like about the book either. Again, I would say that this is my favorite book to read, but a lot of people say the jarring aspect of not being at Hogwarts, because most of the book doesn't take place there until the very end, just yeah. like the movies, really kind of like puts them like out of touch. They don't like the, they spend, you know, such a huge part of the movie or, or book, I'm sorry. Because with, right? with how living the school is, Hogwarts is a character in these movies and the books. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a big detraction for both of them, really, for a lot of people. But for me, this is where the book does a better job than the movie, which kind of sets this book apart from a lot of even other great stories I've read, is that we've kind of touched upon it throughout. J.K. Rowling's been, you know, Harry Potter's your point of view character. And it's really in the seventh book that you just kind of dive in and see how all this comes together in his mind. There's a great scene where he's burying Dobby. And in the movie, it's very moving, very emotional. But in the book, there's just like this inner dialogue going on in his head about which choices he should make. Should he go after the hollows or should he go after the horcruxes? Hollows, horcruxes. And in that moment, you don't really see it when you're reading that page. But if you keep reading the rest of the book and you find out how his choices lead up to his final decision, you can go back to that moment and say like, oh, this is where he kind of put everything together. And you really don't quite get that with the movie as much, but it's amazing how you were able to really kind of be embedded in this character after six previous books and then finally see how his mind works until he comes out to the very end on top because he's able to put all that uh, information together. And it's like right in those moments in the book, which are just fantastic to kind of be able to live and experience alongside him. How much more do the books put on the, you know, not even just the Deathly Hallows, but like the uh, the preceding books put on the, the importance of the Deathly Hallows because you get that. And it's actually a really cool sequence. Um, I think in yeah. movie making terms, it's also a nice money and time saver that it's animated, but they, the yeah. way they did it, the style is really cool. So I, I actually do enjoy that part quite a bit where they're explaining the story of meeting death and he splits it into the three things. And obviously we, we have a lot of experience with the invisibility cloak, the elder wand a little bit and the third one. And I'm actually blanking on right now, trying to think of it because it's like the one that like, is just like, this is also a thing that is here. <laughs> uh, no, it's the resurrection stone that you're speaking of. And yes. you're right. It's, it's, it's funny. They, they didn't, the Deathly Hollows themselves don't show up until this book. It's like, again, it's the MacGuffin of this story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which there's been one in every single book leading up to this. And so, no, there's no previous 
exposure to those at all but it's kind of the red herring though because if, again throughout the story especially the last book these hollows are the title of the book and the movies you think they're really important and everything and they really are at the end but like the fact is that harry has to choose not to go after him it's the first thing he's ever had to do that's like a treasure out there or a mystery out there that he's not really supposed to go and find out about and dumbledore actually made it really hard for him to do so and so in the end, what he's really supposed to do is really kind of go after the Horcruxes. And mm-hmm. by doing that, that's how he actually beats Baltimore. And so that's kind of the thing that he, again, has to make that choice. And so the Hollows, we don't have much exposure to him at all until that same scene that's in the movie, which, like you said, is one of those book that movie, not necessarily changes, but adaptations that was just gorgeous and beautiful. And the only thing you can do with a visual medium as you could do, and they did it brilliantly. When they're looking for Horcruxes and everything, they go to the... They go, it's Bellatrix Lestrange's vault at this point, but it's supposed to be like the Black family vault, right? And yeah. she's like the last one left, and that's why it's it's so awesome. And that uh, that sequence is a little fun, but when they're riding the the like cart down there, it's like <laughs> this looks a lot different than last time you went there. This feels like they definitely made it look like this to build a theme park ride, oh, which is obviously what they subsequently <laughs> did. But I, that's in part one, and that and as I think about that one, that is a little bit more to it. But yeah, it feels like the lead up to finding the the horcruxes how are we going to take these down what do we need to take these down and then i think after that that's a little actiony and and a little fun and there's there's conflict and then they go and they sit in the forest for the rest of the movie and that's i think where i where I, when watching it i was just like this is like it would be nice if at the end of this, and at least I got to sort of binge watch them uh, yeah. over just a course of like two weeks. But I, I really feel like in the moment when people watch that, it would be nice if we could have just, yeah, tacked on another hour, hour and a half. And then that could have been the final battle of Hogwarts as well. Yeah, that's fair. And like you said, it's that action part with the vaults actually in the second part too. It's really the beginning. And it's like, like the cold open basically for the, mm-hmm. uh, the second movie so they don't even have that part in the first oh, so it's not even in the part yeah no, okay. so i'm saying that's that in... the most action i think is where they're in the ministry and that's more of like a spy type thing because they're all in disguises that wear off mm-hmm. eventually and they have to escape and that's kind of actiony but like really there's not much action at all and again more of this character building between these kids who have to go on the run and hide and go camping and there's a few scenes again where they kind of pop up to try to grab a horcrux here and there but really the is mainly just them testing whether they can stay together on this mission or not. And that's kind of what it ends with, too. You know, we've talked about this before on Nerd Association, how it just it didn't used to be that you could make a movie that was three and a half hour, four hours long. You know what I mean? You just couldn't do it. You wouldn't have had that option. And we've talked about that with, like, Zack Snyder's Justice League and the, some of the Marvel movies. And yeah, is it, if they made the Harry Potter movies today... Do you think they would have just done that? Would they have just made a three and a half hour or four hour movie? Yeah, again, because you're right. Like building up that tension to the end of a movie and then never and then not paying it off. Like chops, your point is a really poignant one. Like the only way that tension pays off in a satisfying way is if you binge watch. But you didn't have mm-hmm. that option when the first movie came out to then immediately yeah. watch the second one. Yeah, and I think it was one of those cases where they made them back-to-back, so they were only months apart when they were released, but there's still that like space of time where you're just left with this very depressing, sad situation before yeah. you get that kind of ending, especially for people who watched the movies and didn't read the books. It felt like a little bit of like, well, now what? Yeah. And yeah. I, I think you're right, Daniel. I think they would do things differently now, but I think you'd say that about the entire series. Like, 
honestly, my guess is if they were to do Harry Potter, they'd do more of like a Game of Thrones uh, series. series, right? Yeah. Right. Do like 10 episodes for each book and be done with it or whatever they decide to do. But that's a thing that they probably will do someday. So who knows what it will look like at that point. So, yeah, like I like I've said, I feel like part one mostly is just like I mean, there's there's a lot of character development. There's a lot of expositional type stuff. But yeah. as far as things that actually happen, it feels like they find the sort of Gryffindor and then you move on to part two. And we talked about the the scene where they're trying to go down in, into the vault. And that, yeah. that one's a, a nice, exciting way to to start it. And then it all then. Yeah, it really just turns into like, here's the final confrontation. We've got to go take care of these things and what do we need? How do we get prepared? Everybody's on board because everybody's yep. against Voldemort. And that's, that's what you get for the really second two thirds of part two. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically the bulk of the movie is just, again, it starts with that, that Gringotts bank heist. And again, we're not just going back to Hogwarts. We're going back to some of the other favorite hits and seeing some of our other favorite characters, even though, as you pointed out, Chops, it's amazing how much different it looks now, right? Now that we have better right. technology and everything. <laughs> But we hit the Gringotts and we go on that wild ride. And then basically we just ride a dragon on into the Battle of Hogwarts and go straight from there, which like any great movie fantasy, especially that was made, I feel like this type of budget and everything just did really well, right? It looks great. It looks mm -hmm. exciting. It's uh, action-packed and still has the emotion and everything there that kind of moves you to your seat, hoping that your favorite characters don't get hurt or, or unfortunately die or anything and so like it's really a good movie on its own but like yeah it's like they really had to push all the character development stuff into the first movie and they really just kind of go on a wild ride for the last movie the only one who really kind of gets that emotional beat beyond harry potter himself dan Radcliffe's great performance is really snape who we talked about again in the sixth book but this is really where i think alan rickman just kind of blows the whole Snape story out of the water with not even barely any lines at all. It was just mostly his <laughs> silent acting and facial expressions throughout this limited time he only has in the second movie, but it's just his character. I mean, it was just, I remember watching this being like, wow, he just gets it right. He just understands what his character was written on the page and how he can convey all that with just a look. And his character is really the hinge of the entire story especially in the climax of this, uh, this movie itself and the book. Yeah. And so I like, had to get that right. And I think he just nailed it in this one. And there's a lot of loss in the, in the last two movies and mm -hmm. because of how good that, you know, I mean, it, it almost to the point where some of them get a little bit glossed over and you might not even really feel it in the moment, but that one, the movie goes, we're going to pause for this because not only is it important from just the emotional standpoint, but for the story standpoint. So they yeah. needed to, but they, they, there's a, there's just kind of a little bit of a lull there, not in a bad way, but just compared to the action packedness of the, of the rest of the movie. And yeah, you're right. I mean, just sort of uh, not that he's acting circles or, around anybody because no, the other no. are good, but he's got such a big part in that part. And uh, yeah, he does a, a great job with that and bringing up all that emotion. And then it starts to really click in your head. Oh, so as we mentioned, yeah, previously, like Snape, actually it was a double cross, but it was really just the second move of a triple cross. <laughs> and he was a good guy this whole time. All and time, it's right? all starting to click into your head. And yeah, it's interesting. The, the, one of the things with me with Snape is a little bit of a tangent is how, um, Harry's dad is a bully. Yeah. He's like not the nicest guy, and like yeah. they they let little parts of that go on as they as they tell that story. But it's just I, I've always found that that part interesting. Is like we hold it's what Lily and James Potter we hold them to such high esteem, but really the uh, 
James Potter was kind of mean. Yeah, no, it's it's really funny. And again, the books dive into this much further just because they had the space and room to do so. We talked already about how the uh, um, Prisoner Mask Man movie cut out a lot of that backstory of those mm. that generation. And in the books, thankfully, you get a lot of that throughout, not just that one, but the rest. And yeah, Harry's dad and Sirius Black, they were mean. They were bullies to Snape. And again, you get the hints of it throughout that Snape was kind of like that too in his own way, but like to them, but like, there's a lot of, I think a lot of discussion, especially now in the fandom as the generation who read it as kids are getting older and can kind of understand these signs of these types of things where it's like Snape's not a great person either for basically being cruel and a bully to Harry simply because he didn't like his dad. Yeah. And that his dad wasn't right to be a bully to Snape either. And like this cycle just keeps going. It's a difficult thing to balance because I think the point of Snape is really to focus on the overall theme that I think JK Rowling is trying to get established, which is that yes, everyone's got some bad qualities to him. Everyone's got some things that they didn't do well, but like it's their love. And again, some people question whether it was right for Snape to love the way he did, you know, Harry and his mom and everything. Was that quite right? Was that an appropriate type of love? You can talk about that all day. But the fact is that his love kind of won out in the end. And I think that's kind of the theme that really goes on, right? Like James's love won out in the end for him too. They say several times that he grew out of that stage, became a better person, fell in love with Lily himself. And, you know, that kind of also helped become a better person too. And it's just like, it's the idea that love will win out. And if it does so, that makes the person at least able to, you understand where they're coming from. And you can understand that they've made the right choice if they make that choice for love rather than for some other reason, which... Voldemort's the exact opposite of that, right? Where right. he would never just... make the choice for love, right? And so that, that's why he's the ultimate villain because he had several opportunities where he have, but like he didn't. Whereas like Snape did all these terrible things himself, but like in the end, he made at least that one right decision for that one right reason. And for that reason, we should at least honor him for that sacrifice that he made. Even if some of the other things we should question about or same thing with James, we should question about those things. We should at least honor what they did for love at least. As you were saying that, I was thinking that about Voldemort, and that's why the, the culmination of all these characters and everything works so well, is you get that like underlying, you know, just like the human aspect of love conquering yeah. over evil, and then you get it in, in, in the physical form, because if you really sit down and think about it, especially with like Dumbledore gone and Snape gone, when you talk about these battles, the Death Eaters in Voldemort are way overpowered versus these <laughs> mostly students and yeah. teachers that they're that they're going up against. And yeah. uh it, but it's the power of love. I mean, Bellatrix, who you know is arguably one of the more powerful ones available to mm -hmm. the Death Eaters camp, she's taken out by Mrs. Weasley, not because she's a super powerful wizard, but because she's pissed off and you know heartbroken but also yeah ready ready to fight because there's still other you know her, her son dies and there's other kids around and she right. just takes that to the next level and down one of the more powerful death eaters exactly i think i think jk rollins even said like that's a mother's love that won out against some of the purest evil that she put into her stories right yeah like, bellatrix was going after jenny and molly steps in and says not no and just blast her away basically because like again a mother's love from somebody who didn't expect to even have that capability that that love just powered her through to this amazing feat and again this is one of the things that's really um again as a book fan i, I feel bad saying this because i love these movies but like as a book fan the ending with between harry and voldemort which i think they even say in the specials great cinema they they they're fighting they're twirling around it's a really good symbolism for their connection and their story throughout mm -hmm. but like in the books it's much quieter. It's like one spell and that's it. 
are basically talking to each other for the most part. And again, you can understand why that wouldn't necessarily be good cinema, but like they're basically just circling each other, talking about exactly how these, these chess moves that have been going on. They kind of just explain it to all the viewers and the readers at the same time of the battle. And then it ends with one spell and that's it. And it's like, it's funny quieter. how, well, it's funny how those like work for the medium they're in because in a book you can only write green light hits red light out of their wand so many times before it's like well i will i need more from from it off a page but visually that is striking and fun to watch the action is really good i really like when uh neville leads them all onto the onto the the bridge and just it collapses and he gets away at just the last second and that's also (laughs) helpful because it takes away a large part of their their army in one fell swoop so that 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 trap works uh but uh one more character one that I really like is when they're all talking there in the, in, in that like courtyard at Hogwarts and um, they're trying to get Draco to come back over to the death eaters. And he does very sheepishly decide to walk back over there. And I think I've read this before that <laughs> it was not scripted that Ralph Fiennes was supposed to step up and give him a hug. Yeah. And it works perfectly because <laughs> it looks like the most awkward thing of all time when Voldemort hugs Draco. Oh yeah, I mean Ralph Fiennes is just eating it up in the that scene so much. He just loves what he's doing. You can just tell, right? Like he's just embodying this side of the character of just like somebody who just like won everything, the lottery, um, you know, victory. It's just like he just really <laughs> embodies mm-hmm. that, and yet it's such an evil, awkward character that to be like seen so happy and everything. And so it, it's really brilliant what he did with that. Yeah. I don't think it was scripted. They said, so that's, that's hilarious. It's an interesting sort of play on what you were talking about, about love. And for Draco, like that is the, the love that he never received from his father, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. it's yeah. the most bastardized version of love you could imagine. You know, like you yeah. said, like it's so, it's like so fake it's using love as a weapon, not as a, yeah, I don't know. It's the flip side of the coin of like a mother's love. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's no, like, I, it's like I, a, I, a wicked reflection of it. That's all. That's those, those, are, my, those are my two yeah. cents. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as the battle goes on, it's also, as we mentioned, it's about killing the Horcruxes. So you've got Ron and Hermione is their romance is finally blossoming when they're going down to get yeah. the, the basilisk fang because that can kill Horcruxes. So they, and then they, they have their, their big moment with the, with the big kiss and th- that goes on. But my favorite one is because there's that whole idea that Neville could have also been one of the, the chosen ones. If yeah. Harry Potter had actually been uh, killed by Voldemort all those years ago. And he at least gets, he doesn't, you know, Harry gets to take down Voldemort, but, and it's because Neville is able to take down the snake with the, with the sword of Gryffindor. And that's, that's a that's a really good cinematic action moment and also tying it. It's not just action for action's sake. It really ties into the story because all the other Horcrux killings are pretty light. You know, they're not yeah. you're not fighting a book when you stab it with a with a fang. You just you just stab the book. So I like that one. How that's the final one and it's it, it fits into the action packness of it, but it's still the story aspect of getting the Horcrux. Oh, absolutely. And to your point earlier, like Neville becomes an action hero in this movie, right? And I've called this like the action film of the two, but like him hanging off the bridge, like you said, which is a great scene and ties into Seamus blowing up things so well as far as a character standpoint. But like you see him hanging off the bridge, it's just like something you'd see uh, Daniel out of Indiana Jones or something. He's just hanging off by his fingers. He crawls up, he's got a smile on his face. 
he comes in with this big sword and just cuts a snake in two. And it's, again, like Neville's leveled up in the same way that we've seen Harry kind of do it slowly. Neville's been in the background and it's been kind of an even slower, more subtle burn. And yet this movie really just shows that he's been on that same journey and could have been the one in the forefront this whole time mm-hmm. if Harry had not been there, right? Or Baltimore had made another choice. And so it's really, yeah, it's a really great payoff for him. And of course the actor, I think Matthew Lewis does a great job and um, embodying that awkwardness in the early stages, but really coming out strong with his speech and everything in this one, which is another great change from the books that Neville's speech is much more um, full in the movie. Whereas in the book, it's more about his action of killing the snake that kind of sets things off, off, which is um, just really well done in the movie, I think. I want to know in the book, because you've talked, mentioned multiple times that it's the longest book. How big is the epilogue? Because that is one part where I feel like we get like the, oh, now they're sending their kids to Hogwarts and they did their best to make these 20 year old kids look like they're in their <laughs> their 30s now. And it, it looks yeah. like what it looks like. But you don't get a ton of like what happened next. Like it just they, they took down the, the ultimate evil and then it's like, oh, well. Yeah, We're so, done. This, so this is one of those reasons why you can't call me a super fan because I think I disagree with the fan base a lot with this uh, <laughs> because I think a lot of people were really upset to have this be the ending. They, again, you have the ending of the battle. You have mm-hmm. a couple moments in the book where the, Harry actually gets to talk to Dumbledore's portrait. So there's like that same structure that's in all the other books where Harry and Dumbledore kind of download what happens so that the reader understands exactly what went on. But then it just cuts straight to epilogue. You know, you turn the page, it's blank, and then it says 19 years later, and then all of a sudden we have the epilogue, and people are like, wait, what? Like, there's so many questions that everyone has coming out of that battle. Like, what's happening next to all these people, both villain and hero alike? And instead, we get this purposely, again, the book talks about being really foggy and misty on the platform, mm-hmm. and the movie kind of embodies that, but, like, it's very intentional to be, like, very, like, leave it to your own thoughts about what happened between the end and that moment. And you only get a glimpse of what this moment even is like 19 years in the future. And basically it's only showing you that certain characters are at XYZ spot. Now they've mm-hmm. survived. They've uh, had their family gotten married and they've uh, gone back to school. They got new jobs. You know, they don't show it in the movie, but like Neville spoiler alert, Daniel, uh, becomes a professor. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. Thanks for right spo- giving me a spoiler <laughs> alert 20 years later. Yeah, major spoilers right there. Um, no, but the point is like, it is very short epilogue. It's very, again, like I say, kind of clouded on purpose in the way it's both described and written. And it's just small glimpses of just saying that like life goes on and like, kind of like when I think about Lord of the Rings, you know, you have Frodo at the end of the return of the King writing in the, in the book and then he mm-hmm. kind of sets sail. This is like the setting sail part, right? It's like, not supposed to be, you get to see what happens across the sea, but you get to kind of imagine that, hey, Frodo's done his duty, that he earned his rest, and he's going to go do that. And it's kind of what Harry's done too, right? Yeah. He saved the world. He gets to go back and live the life that he never got to have, which is one with a family, with parents, with kids, sending his kids off to Hogwarts and seeing them kind of have, have hopefully a much more normal life, but I'm sure still dangerous because it's Hogwarts, the safest place on earth. <laughs> um, and so like, yeah, I think that's that's what it's meant to be. But a lot of people were really upset because they were like, no, I don't want to know about this. I didn't want them to get together. Why is like all these high school sweethearts getting married and at the end and everything? And it's just like, that's what J.K. Rowling had put in there. And I think it really just fits because, again, these people had gone through so much. It's just nice to see them all kind of like have that earned uh, life that they all really wanted at the end. I have two thoughts to interject about that. Yeah. 
One, I want to dispel any notion that in order to be a super fan of a series, you have to agree with other people as loudly in you know as they do. Um, I'm I'm inclined to say that the loudest fans of a series are not usually the ones who I am care to associate with. <laughs> so I would like to dispel that, like, oh, you're not a super fan because you don't hate a thing. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> Two, this gets you, you. I'm glad you brought up Lord of the Rings, which you know we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings very soon, and I think Lord of the Rings does this so perfectly. You mentioned like that the the ending of the Lord of the Rings is very quiet. Frodo gets to finally have his peace. George R. R. Martin is really famous for snily saying, yeah, but what was Aragorn's tax policy? And I think mm-hmm. if that's the question you ask, you have completely <laughs> missed the fucking point. Uh, <laughs> and I think that uh, your, your sort of demonstration of that with Harry Potter, like if your question as a, as a fan of the series is like, well, I want to know about the fine details of the 19 intervening years. Like, hey, maybe the point is that like, at at the end of this all it was trying to protect the ones you loved and like get things back to being calm and peaceful like maybe uh, you know maybe it's about the power of love and not the uh sort of political structures that fall into place when you finally kill Vold. you know what i mean Yeah. yeah i think if you if you ask like what aragorn's tax policy was as king you have completely missed the point now that doesn't mean as a fan you can't be curious about those things right but to say like that's the wrong ending because it doesn't answer the questions i want answered that's called toxicity friends yeah and we don't we don't buy into that here (laughs) i think that'll be a really good transition into the next piece of harry potter media that we're going to talk about i've got two more things from the movies before we get to that but i think the idea because in the in the lead up to this 20th anniversary special, a lot of the marketing was centered around a Daniel Radcliffe quote, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like, I think when it ended, we were all worried that this would have been the most significant thing in our lives. And it was over at 21 or whatever. And he says, I don't think that's true. And almost the ending of the movie kind of illustrates that too, that like, this is a really important thing, but Harry Potter's still got a whole life to live. It's not, it can't be the most important thing. It it can't be that everything important he's ever going to do is over. And I think that actually does a good job of illustrating that there at the end of the movie series that like, no, he went on, he had a family, he's sending that kid to Hogwarts. He's having a really fulfilled life beyond that because it would be really depressing if it turned into like Harry Potter wearing his Letterman jacket back to Hogwarts. But you know what I did here 20 years ago? (laughs) So, But in the movies, two things I have a problem with. One, all right, and I believe this is at the beginning of the Half-Blood Prince. I'm sorry. Dumbledore, couldn't you just let Harry, you know, go on that date with the coffee shop girl (laughs) instead of running in and be like, ah, not important. Like, come on, man. He sat there all day in that coffee shop. Maybe he really liked that girl and wanted to to take her out for a night on the town. I I have a big problem with that one. (laughs) And two, the Wizarding World is super selfish. They could solve so many problems, and I know they want to keep a secret and, you know, with the risk of being persecuted and everything, and that's a, a, a legitimate concern. But so many things in healthcare, famine, just taking care of minor things that they can do with their magic, I just feel like they could share it with the world a little bit more. And when they don't, it makes me think of them as selfish and not very altruistic well they're like they've created like a a sort of upper class a magical upper class that like by definition excludes people on the basis of 
let's be honest, on the basis of race, because <laughs> they make a really big deal of like magic's in your blood or it's not, which, by the way, means yes. that if you treat everyone else that isn't like you biologically as being inferior, that's racism. Like, yeah. <laughs> and also, I agree with you 100%. And on the flip side of that, there would be a lot more Voldemorts if people were like were all had that sort of casual power. Like Voldemort yeah. would not be a one-off thing. <laughs> there would be constantly people trying to pull that kind of crap. Especially when you talk about the the powers they possess to uh, seemingly there are more normal humans than there are magic humans. Yeah. So when you could assess that much power over a larger group of people. That's the other thing is they, they seem so insular worried about that. I feel like there'd be Voldemort's who are like, well, I'm just going to go take over the muggle world. Yeah, man. Too. Exactly. It's pretty easy. Exactly. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's the sort of um, super villain thing, right? Is like, right. Just go get enough plebs on your side. I mean, it's what Sauron and, and Morgoth did forever. Right. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> I'm not going to try to recruit the best and brightest. I'm just going to get like a million orcs and throw them at you. Yeah. I, I, for one thing, Mark, to your first point, I mean, yeah, that Dumbledore, this is where we talk about the Gantt thing, right? Just be nice to Harry. You want Harry to be happy. Why would you take him away when he's just got, he's been all day. It's summer vacation. Let him take the just, shot, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> now that whole movie, he's way too invested in Harry's love life in the, completely the wrong ways. Uh, he's asking about Hermione, get involved, just laughing at all the teenagers. No, that, that, that was not a good representation or good uh, example for people to uh, let the guy be happy. Let him at least try, have his date be a little you know he's gotta go fight a war here soon right poor guy um no uh to to the bigger point and it's, i'm glad you brought this up because i think it is something that especially and we're going to talk about this more lots of people struggle with the idea that like and to daniel's point you know a lot of this is talking about race and superiority i think i mentioned that they were like when we're talking about the dangers in hogwarts these are like these kids are basically like gods they can make things change and move and control people with just a wave of a stick like those things are not normal nor really kind of safe to put into a child's hands in most cases. And yet that's what these people can do. And so it's like really tough to wrap our heads around in regards to like, why would they separate themselves? Why would they kind of like not help more people out? And I think what JK Rowling does is that that's a huge part of what she's trying to kind of talk about without necessarily bogging down the novels or movies with those details even though they kind of touch upon them and if you read a lot of the extra stuff she does go deeper into it but like the bad guys are the ones who are always like harming muggles or people without magic when they have a chance to do so right they're always mm -hmm. the ones who are abusing those powers and in many cases they show examples of especially Dumbledore but also others who are like helping muggles when they are out and about or like again and especially when the war is in full-blown shape you know the the good guys put out on the radio you know we know you won't need to protect yourselves, but do the best you can to help those who might be in the line of fire, whether they're magical people or not, you know, and that's kind of the message of the good guys. And even they make mistakes though. There's times where Harry uses the mind controlling spell, which is supposed to be an unforgivable spell. Right. And like all this other stuff. So they're not perfect and clean and going back to Snape and James, it seems like no one is. And I think that if that's our expectation of our heroes, then we really don't understand the journeys that they have to go through and sacrifice that they have to make. Um, but in regards to whether they can help us or not, there's a really great line in the sixth book where it's like the prime minister of England is talking to the uh, prime minister of magic, the minister of magic is like, I don't understand why you're having this fight. You guys can do magic. Can't you solve anything? And the minister of magic turns back to him and says, well, that's just the problem. The other side can too. And it's just like, it's not so simple. And one of the best lessons that you learn from the series is that the wizards have just as many problems 
as mm -hmm. the normal people do in just a different way. And it's like, you can't escape those, whether you're all powerful or not. They might be able to solve this problem, but guess what? That comes with 10 other problems, the fact that you can do that. And so I think a big lesson is that like, we all want that ability. That's what makes it such a dreamlike world to escape to, uh, being able to say a spell and something happened. But like the books go to great length to really say, there's lots of risk that comes with that. There's lots of other problems that you can't even foresee that comes with that. And that's just really the reality of humanity, whether you're magical or not, is that wave a wand, solve one problem, we have more. And so like, if you really want to think about a lot, you realize that there's really not a good answer either way. Hopefully they use it for good. And you can just trust them kind of like superheroes, right? Superhero movies do a great job explaining this. We hope the superheroes use their powers for good, but that can easily be in the wrong hands, something bad. And so it's kind of one of those things where take all the magical and science fiction out of it. Hopefully people use their gifts and abilities for good and hopefully that they don't use it for bad and maybe in that way we can kind of all get a little bit better but of course there's nothing out there that can really solve everybody's problems and we're just all gonna have to work on that on our own i like that explanation i'm still not convinced that they should keep it all a complete <laughs> yeah, secret I, but i think that fair enough. Uh, I does know, have man. more context i mean you're right that, that, that <laughs> like harry potter is not the only media that deals with this problem superheroes yeah. and other but like I'm, I'm gonna be uh I feel like wave a wand. I want the wand. I want the wand. Is a pretty simple like <laughs> that should be available to everybody. Why are we still yeah. wearing casts if there's a whole group of people that can just go bam fixed? But then, but then you got the guys who like blow the bones completely out of your arm and it's all floppy. <laughs> That's stuff, <right>? true. Yeah, <laughs> and growing know. bones is way harder than than exactly. healing bones Mending as them, we. Right? <laughs> now, one last thing yeah. from the Harry Potter world, and I don't know if the books go into it at all, but I feel like there's not enough these are teenagers and they're still humans. Yeah. Why don't they like muggle media? Would that be just too hard to incorporate? Like, wouldn't there still be music and TV shows and movies and things that they like? And there's like none of that in the movies. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's really funny because I think Jake really had to talk about this. Cause there's so many questions about like, Oh, you know what? There are problems we solved if somebody was just carrying a cell phone or even at that time when they're supposed to take place, a beeper or something, you know? Yeah. Right. She basically has to explain it away. Like electricity doesn't work at Hogwarts. Like okay. she doesn't work with magic at all. The reason, you know, basically she had to say like, I got to get rid of all the devices that these kids might be able to use to solve some of their problems. And the best way to do that is to say that electricity does not work where places have a lot of magic going on for whatever reason. Yeah. I, I, and so like, there's always these theories about like, Oh yeah, they could use the internet. And it's just like, no, no, they can't do that. And so like, it's fun to experiment with that, but she's got like a reason for why that's not working, whether you buy into it or not. That's a, that's a classic problem to relate it back to other nerddoms like in dungeons and dragons when you're trying to run a game and it's like <laughs> can i magic my way out of this or right now i'm running a sci-fi game where it's like well can't i just hack it and <laughs> as a as a you know a game master having to be like either be like no it doesn't work because of this reason i just decided on or you have to do the world building <laughs> thing where you're like you know okay electricity doesn't work with magic right yeah. now like in the sci-fi game explaining hyperspace in a in a reality where both science and magic are hyper developed is like a really difficult thing and i have yeah. one player who's who's extremely intelligent and knows a lot about like astrophysics who's like well you know it actually wouldn't work that way and i have to just be like no but shut up because i need like just let's you gotta let me just we gotta go like we can't yeah. sit here and wonder like why this particular type of hyperdrive is different than this hyperdrive it just is bud like you know it's hard i 
I mean, hard. it's easy to come down on J- J.K. Rowling for reasons that we will, I think, soon discuss. Is it fair to say, can I, rather than talking about the entire 20th anniversary special, people can go watch that. But is it worth yeah. asking, like, did each of you have a favorite moment or like a thing that was particularly cool for you to see or to realize about with that special? I think for me, it was interesting. I don't know if either of you are West Wing fans, but HBO put out like a West Wing reunion special, I think a year and a half ago now when they first aired. And it was kind of like they, it was no new content, right? They just kind of reread uh, a former episode as like a play. Yeah. And it was mm-hmm. just really great to see all the cast and see that it was a really good episode. So it was good to see them do that and everything. So going into the Harry Potter special, I was kind of like, I know I'm not going to get anything earth shattering here, right? I'm not going to get anything about like, oh, this was what was going on behind the scenes. These people have done interviews ad nauseum about right. their lives on these movies. And you can go and find those in so many different places. I don't, like I said, I'm not such a super fan where I've watched every single piece of content. So I don't know all these things, but I wasn't really expecting like a bomb to drop. I was like, I probably have heard along the lines at some point or another in the past 10 to 20 years that that's happened or not. Right. But I did go into it with lots of enthusiasm because it's just really great to just have an excuse to watch something about Harry Potter, right? right. Something that I can't quote word for word or you mm-hmm. know do all that. And it, that's exactly what it was. It was a just like the hit West Wing, right? It's HBO Max, well produced and filmed. Cinematography is gorgeous. It's great to see the sets again, all um, fresh and like they've like never been gone before. All these actors. It's really funny to see how. The young actors look so mature and um, they really have grown into some really capable human beings across not just acting, but all the other things they do and see some of the older generation of actors who are just these legends and kind of reminiscing together about the work that they did. There's some great nuggets in there about like just little things like the things that the kids do where they're like slapping hands and stuff during yeah. <laughs> takes and stuff where it's just like, oh yeah, they're kids, right? Or the fact that I, I was looking at my wife, Emily, and was kind of saying, like, it's funny how much they bring up their age a lot in regards of, like, oh, he was, like, a couple years older than me or she was a year younger than me. And it's like, you really wouldn't think that matter that much. But then you're like, oh, but they're kids. And at that point in time in your life, yeah, one year makes a huge difference compared yeah. to the person next to you. So, yeah, it makes sense. And right. And so you get those little things that are just kind of fun to watch, even though it's not really anything earth shattering or groundbreaking. And so... The whole thing's enjoyable and again, well shot and everything. I think I mentioned before, one of my favorite parts was just uh, Helen Bottom Carter's just complete enthusiasm that just radiates off the screen of just being around. Like she Daniel her- Radcliffe definitely had a crush on her. That's <laughs> pretty apparent. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And I'm sure uh, we can talk about this at length though, but can we just say that pretty much everybody most likely had a crush on Emma Watson at some point or another in the young <laughs> cast? And, you know, you can't really blame them or anything, but like they spent a whole chunk of time talking about her and Tom Felton's relationship. And I just sat there the whole time thinking, man, HBO really had to sit those two down and say, we really need this for our special because that like they go for links and there's been rumors for years and stuff. And they really go to links to like highlight that. I'm like, these two probably are so tired of talking about this stuff. And uh, yeah, it's good. They're good sports for doing it, but like, it's fun. I think Helen bottom Carter was my favorite personal part. Robbie Coltrane has a great line that's been circulating on media about like, how these movies are like going to last forever. And even if he's gone, it'll still be there and everything. And I think he's really correct in saying that and how it goes on for future generations, including his kids and their kids. As a dad myself, I feel that a lot too. Um, but yeah, it was just, it's just great to see. It's just a great way to spend some time in that world, even though, again, I didn't really gain anything new. It was just something, a new way to digest the stuff I do love. What do you think, Mark? 
my favorite part of it, and uh, it's like kind of because it's the uh, cool behind the scenes movie moment. And again, yeah, I have not taken in every interview that's ever been, but this yeah. seemed like it was at least news to Gary Oldman. So I, right. I really appreciated that when Daniel Radcliffe was talking about how Snape was the only person, not Snape, Alan Rickman yeah. was the only person who, because he could tell as the way the character was written and how it was going, that Snape had more to him than what was on the surface. Whereas not that the other characters are surface level, but they're kind of forward facing in who they are and what side they're on. And he could tell that. So he made a point to ask JK like, Hey, I need to know so I can properly act throughout the years, this character, what actually goes on with Snape. And he was totally right in his assessment. Cause as we talked about, there's a double, there's a double triple cross with, with Snape. And because of that, he gets to offer such a, such an awesome performance throughout that. And I just love the detail that like nobody else knew, not even the directors like Chris Columbus in yeah. the second one or something. The anecdote is that he, he came up to him. He's like, so why are you acting this scene this way? And he's like, that's for me to know, Chris, and you'll find out sometime down the road. Yeah, that was a great moment. I agree. Uh, it's one of those things where I, that's one of the ones I had known. Again, I don't follow everything, but J.K. Rowling had said right after Alan Rickman's uh, okay. passing that she had talked to him. And so, like, I knew that one. But my wife, Emily, who, again, is a fan of the series, too, both books and movies, she hadn't known that. And so I got to see her reaction to that live where it's like, oh, my gosh, he knew. And I just found it hilarious that Gary Oldman didn't know, like, um, mm -hmm. that, I mean, Alan Rickman, it's true. Like, he's the only one who had from the get-go of his performance, knew basically the ending of the story. And like, he kept that. Think about that. I, I remember seeing a recent interview of uh, Mark Hamill talking about he had to keep the uh, secret, spoiler alert, everybody, uh, that Darth Vader's <laughs> dad, um, secret from when they filmed it till it came out in theaters, right? And it was like a couple years or whatever it turned yeah. out to be. And in fact, um, had to keep it from like, Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford, who right. later were like, you son of a bitch. Like, right? why did you tell us? Right? You can call that probably the biggest secret, but like Alan Rickman for 10 years knew the ending of the Harry Potter series. And <laughs> like 10 years left yeah. sitting on the most probably yeah. the biggest secret that he could have sold to anyone. And like, I mean, that goes right up there with Mark Hamill's thing where it's like this guy and he used it. Like, again, there's like moments where it's not in the books, but like in the movie where in the third movie, when the uh, Lupin turns into werewolf and Snape comes out, he's ready to like yell at Harry for tricking him and everything. And then he turns around and sees the werewolf and he like throws his arms out to protect the kids. It's like, then you realize like his true intentions, right? Or to always protect Harry right. and his friends, right? And it's like, mm -hmm. he put that in there. That's not in the books. That's probably not in the script. That's probably Alan Rickman just saying, I'm doing this because I know that that's even though Snape I'm acting like do. a jerk yeah. to Harry the whole time, that's the real Snape, right? And so, like, if you go back and watch the movies, having that knowledge, it really does kind of put his performance into, again, this is where I say, like, the last movie, I don't know why he just wasn't nominated for Academy Award. I mean, the rest of the cast did phenomenal, too. But, like, Rickman really just took all the things he'd been building for 10 years and kind of just let it rip in that last movie. And you can just see that that was really a well-thought-out plan between him and J.K. Rowling to have given him that knowledge. Now, um, you know, talking about, I, I think an appropriate way to sort of wrap up this discussion yeah. is obviously one of the glaring omissions from this special was that of the author herself. And of course, we... When they did, or they made a very clear point to be like, filmed in 2019. Yeah. <laughs> For reasons that, you know, are, are I think, mo apparent to most of the fandom, obviously uh, she has had some understatement of the century questionable takes on the trans community that we here are 
definitely not qualified to give perspective on, other than to say, talking about this series, reflecting on it, admiring the writing, in no way excuses that, is in no way an endorsement of that, at least I don't think so, some people might disagree. All we're qualified to say here is, no thanks, we don't want any part of that hateful opinion, and sometimes that's all that should be said if you're not qualified to talk about a given issue. Sometimes the issue is that people who don't have a valid perspective talk too much, and so that's the stance we're taking right here. But we thought it's worth acknowledging that exists, and I think it brings up a really interesting question about, you know, I know a lot of people, and Michael, uh, I hope you'll speak to this as like a, you know, a lover of the Harry Potter series. I think a lot of people were heartbroken to realize that this author who had written these characters that they fell so in love with has this sort of ugly side. I mean, not you were talking kind of about how James Potter and Snape had their own ugly sides, right? I mean, this is, I don't necessarily want to equate those things, but like it brings up the question of who, once the material's out in the world, like does it belong to the author? Does it belong to the fans? Like what's the line? And as I mentioned to the two of you ahead of time, in this case, I think you can, one could argue like you can love Harry Potter and not love the person who wrote it. But on the other hand, I'm also one of the first people to, like when people criticize Star Wars, for instance, be like, actually, these characters don't belong to you. Uh, <laughs> like when you make up ideas of what you think should be in the next Star Wars movie or next Star Wars show, like these characters don't belong to you. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know that there's one clear right answer, but talk about this idea with me for a minute. Where do you fall? And Michael, I'd like to start yeah. with you. Like, where did this hit you when, you know, all this kind of started to come out? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's one that this is necessary to ask right now. I, there's a great line. I don't know if you two are fans of Ted Lasso, where he talks about um, a protest one of his players is making, and they're all asking him questions at the press conference. And he's like, "Listen, when I have problems, there's really no reason for me to have to talk about it because you all do that for me. Uh, but when somebody who's maybe a part of a minority community has a problem, they kind of have to shout to get your attention. And so it's one of those things, like you just said, Daniel. We're not probably in a place to talk about the ins and outs of what this her tweets mean and what, what impact it's had on a, a community that's already struggling in lots of ways. But we can say that it has had an impact and it's definitely been one that's been kind of fraught, especially for people like myself who love this series and love this story. And you talked about disappointment. I think a lot of those same people are really kind of struggling with disappointment because as we referenced throughout, like a lot of this story is about uh, overcoming bigotry, racism, and all this other stuff in regards to, again, the bad guys being such a terrible group of people who just really want to be authoritarian and um, all this other stuff. And then you have these heroes who kind of band together of all different walks of life and kind of want more of a, a fair stake for people, big and small, elves and wizards, muggles and not. Um, and so it's really tough to kind of like bring those two real world and fantasy world that you've just loved together and realize that they may not be compatible but I think, I think the biggest thing to say to your, your question is that um, I'm going to walk a fine line in regards to that kind of that who's the story belong to creators or, or um, the audience it's intended for and really kind of say it's, it's kind of neither and both at the same time. Basically, for me, it's the individual themselves, right? Like I can't speak for any other fan what this story means to them and what really speaks to them. I'm so grateful to be able to come in here and talk just for a little while about what it means to me. 
that's mine. I take the story and kind of embody what I love about it and try to like kind of enjoy and live by the things that I think are positive. And that's where we talk a lot about love and the power of love. I, I mean, that's something that really hits home for me in lots of different ways. And so that's something that I want to embody in my real world life as well. That doesn't mean that the entire story is perfect. And in a lot of ways, there's again, characters who I love who are flawed, but there are certain things that for me personally really speak to me and I'll always love and cherish no matter what's going on because that's my individual view. But that doesn't give me any reason to own over what somebody else's individual views are on the story or how those feelings might change for them over time. I don't think it necessarily belongs to the creators either. They, they created something and it's theirs to tell, but I think that they put it out there and in the interpretations for each person themselves. And so when something gets this popular, and many people share that enjoyment, it's kind of hard to see the, the individual impact lost amongst the global impact that something like Harry Potter has. But for me, the, that ownership of that interpretation really belongs to the individual. And so for me, it's like saying that I love the Harry Potter books. They're my favorite story ever written. The movies are great. I love them as well. But like, I don't consider some of the changes they made in the movies, nor the, the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child play to be like canon. And if you get in discussions of fans of canon and not canon, like there's, yeah. for me, it's like, I get to make that choice. If you consider it canon, that's fine. I know it exists. I know these things exist. I know what the story is. I know how that fits into the larger story. For my personal enjoyment, in Harry Potter's case, those seven books are the seven books. And that's what I enjoy. That's what I love. And that's what I'll talk about. And we can talk about the other stuff. But for me, that's the story, right? And so I'll always love that story. I'm not unaware of the things that are going on in the real world. I'm understanding of uh, the different things that are being argued. And again, even if I can't speak to that personally, I understand that there's a struggle there going on. But like, I'm going to always enjoy these books because they've spoke to me as, as we talked about before of going i grew up with harry literally and so like for me especially it was really my journey alongside harry's and maybe i draw too much parallels between those two stories and i probably should it was really important to me and always will be i'm but like to the point of the other fans i'm sharing them now with my children and they're interpreting them in their own ways and of course they're going to because they have completely different lives and perspectives and ways of digesting this material than i did and so it's going to impact them even if this stuff wasn't going on and so the story is going to change, but I think it's true that these books will always be on the shelves of people who enjoy reading. I think that's always going to be the case right alongside Lord of the Rings, Wizard of Oz, Peter Pan. I think it was uh, um, Stephen King who kind of said that, that these, these books are always going to be considered some of the most special reading materials you can have growing up. And I hope that's true because it really no matter what's going on in the real world, these stories do have a lot of things that you can learn and grow from and appreciate. Um, if you really look at it and we talked about some of them today, but there's a whole bunch more and the movies do a great job of capturing that and allowing you to digest it in a easier and maybe more fun way. But like, I'd hate to see that one person's actions post creating something really kind of tear down all the good that was built with that, not just from that person themselves, but the fans who kind of built this community alongside it. I think in the way things go nowadays with, you know, how, quickly an internet mob can can you know the 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 catchy term is cancel somebody and i think there needs to be more practice in those some of these things being more personal decisions and the validity of different ones that somebody says i can't watch harry potter anymore because of those views i think that's valid if somebody says that there's so much more 
to these movies and how many people went into them and they still mean so much to me. I also think that's valid. I think where the, the idea of canceling somebody does get it right is that that person should have to face repercussions and it might be harder for them to, to find deals and find work and find people that they are going to partner up with to create more media or whatever it is that their talent is. I think it, one, again, it's okay if somebody feels that what somebody has done after they created something is enough for them to to just not feel right taking in that that product or that movie, that book, that song, whatever it might be. But um, I don't think we need to force it on everybody that you should hate something that already existed that you already had a relationship with just because what – the creator or somebody associated with it might have have said one time and it just goes to there's there's validity in in both options for people and i think that's somewhat uh, of a personal choice it's the future stuff and that's where daniel i feel like with that like uh cognitive dissonance you were talking about well these characters don't belong to you and it's yes if somebody if disney or whoever is in charge of star wars at the time wants to go forward and, and, and do this with their characters then that is their that is their right because they literally own the rights to these characters but when you're talking about stuff that already exists it already exists and there's nothing we can do about it don't focus so much on the past look forward in these things and if you enjoy things don't let it don't let it be ruined by really outside forces of, of the real world when the fun part about fiction is that it allows you to escape how terrible you you know it can feel sometimes living in reality and you can go into these fictional stories and it's good so don't let the reality of things i think ruin things for you but again if it does i don't have a problem with that i just think there needs to be yeah just a little bit more of like seeing it for for other people that for them it's not always something that destroys a piece of art for them and for other people it does and I'm okay with either wherever you fall. I think those were two very nuanced and thoughtful answers, and I don't have anything to add. I really appreciate both of you. We got we got deep here yeah. at the end. Any f- closing thoughts? Mischief managed. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Mischief managed. Amen. I'll I'll end it on that. Well, folks, thank you for uh, listening to Nerd Association. Thanks for sticking with us for this. Our first uh, two-parter, kind of? Kind of like Harry Potter and yeah. Stephen Hollis. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I hope we're not accused of stretching it out too much uh, over two episodes. Thank you once again to Michael Lyons oh, for coming on, for being our super nerd. Thanks for sharing your insights. Really appreciate you. We could not have done it without you, so uh, thank you very much. And you can find Michael, by the way, at uh, the Michael Lyons on Twitter. That's right. Thank you again both for having me. This has been great. A lot of fun. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter by uh, reaching out to us at our handle, NerdAssoc. That's N-E-R-D underscore A-S-S-O-C. You can also email us, NerdAssoc at gmail.com. Reach out to us. Let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about. Or you could even be like Michael and come on and be one of our nerds. And, and in this case, certainly much more knowledgeable than we are. Help us guide the discussion. Thanks once again for listening. We will talk to you next week. Bye.